this week marks the beginning of the Christian season of Lent. Lent is the 40 days before Easter, and it's a symbolic reference of the 40 days that the story goes. Jesus went into the wilderness before the start of his ministry. We often think about Lent as a time to cut back or give up on vices. Um, Fat Tuesday is the day before Lent. Um, In French, that's Mardi Gras. And it's the last day to indulge. It's the last day to eat donuts for 40 days. (laughs) But for some of our Christian neighbors, Lent is a time of contemplation of penitence, sometimes even grief. These 40 days and nights leading up to Easter are symbolic of the time spent fasting in the wilderness. And in turn, the story in Matthew reflects an earlier time in the wilderness, the 40 years the Israelites spent wandering in the Exodus, yearning for but not yet entering the promised land. The first time I preached on this text, Matthew 4, um, was at the chapel at Wesley Theological Seminary. Wesley is the United Methodist Seminary where I was a student, and it was my first preaching class. And learning preaching at Wesley was unlike anything that I have ever done before or since, because in, in a homiletics class, you get up, in the chapel, deliver a sermon, uh, and then pull all the chairs into a circle and listen to the whole class critique what you've just said. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, in this church we call this coffee hour. The United Methodists are diverse by nature, um, and Wesley's student body reflected that. There's the usual split between um, mainline liberal seminarians and southern evangelical Methodists, but there was also a healthy contingent of preachers coming out of the black church, and students who, unsure of their English, preached in Korean with a classmate serving as a translator. The one rule was that everybody preached from the Bible. This is to level the playing field a little bit. I treasured that experience. I I always will. It teaches students to listen to and develop their own unique voice in the midst of variety. The reading this morning from the Gospel of Matthew begins with Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness. A couple other translations say that he was driven into the wilderness. And in the verse right before, God has declared Jesus, my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. We might expect, Jesus might have expected in the story, that this would be the beginning of a triumphant story bringing words of justice and mercy, healing the wounds of the world. Instead, 
Jesus is driven into the wilderness, into the desert, to fast for 40 days and nights. So the sharp-eyed among you might notice that I am not John Lou Johnstone. Uh, in the announcement for the service this week, we had originally planned this as a pulpit swap, that I would go to Manhattan, Kansas, and John Lou would come and preach here, um, it being winter. Um, they, I actually haven't heard what the, their final decision was, but they may have had to cancel because of the snowstorm that hit Kansas last night. So I am here instead of there. And I'm actually really glad I am. Um, and I'm going to try and move through this mouth here. Because it's easier to have this particular conversation here rather than uh, a church that has never heard me preach and doesn't know what any of my connections with the United Methodist Church are. You all have heard a lot of these stories. Because for those of us with close connections to the United Methodist Church, this last week has felt a little like being driven into the wilderness. There's, a, there's an old norm. I first heard it referred to as a gentleman's agreement, which is a terrible phrase in this particular context, that denominations and ministers do not comment on the internal affairs of other denominations. And that's usually a good norm. I, I can barely follow developments at the Unitarian Universalist Association myself. And I would be rightly more than a little defensive if a Lutheran colleague weighed in on what Unitarianism should do. And, and yet, it feels like we do need to talk about this one, about this week. What's going on in the Methodist Church is important enough on its own, and I know I'm not the only person in this congregation with a tight connection to institutional Methodism somewhere in my life. So, briefly then, for the last decade, the United Methodist Church, along with a lot of mainline denominations, has struggled with the role of LGBTQ folks in ministry and whether Methodist ministers should be allowed to perform same-sex weddings. And before we, before we judge the Methodist church too strongly, remember that the, the strength of Methodism as an institution is how broad it is both the Bushes and the Clintons attended Methodist churches in DC during their presidencies. And the culture of South Korean Methodism is much different than the culture of Illinois Methodism. After their last equivalent of General Assembly, the Methodist church decided to answer this question definitively. Last weekend, almost a thousand delegates gathered from across the country and the world in St. Louis for three days. And going into the conference, the, the Methodist Council of Bishops endorsed what they called the One Church Plan, 
broadly, this was a plan that would allow different jurisdictions to make different decisions. So the Methodist jurisdiction in San Francisco could say, we will ordain everybody, and we will encourage um, our ministers to marry everybody that comes through their doors. And the Methodist jurisdiction in uh, Kinshasa could make a different decision. That was the, the plan recommended by the bishops coming in. Unfortunately, um, that was not the plan that, that passed the gathering. Delegates passed what they called the traditional plan that not only keeps the current ban against same-sex weddings, and this is their words, um, avowed homosexuals serving in ministry, but it strengthens enforcement. It's not an exaggeration to say that watching this happen for progressive Methodists felt like an invalidation of their very existence. In the days since, it's felt like triage, holding on to each other and wondering what the next steps could possibly be, where we go from here. Just as a, as a taste of some of what's, what's been going on, um, the Dean Emeritus of Wesley, who is one of my, my teachers <laughs> about the Bible, Bruce Birch wrote this yesterday in an open letter to some of the proponents of the traditional plan. And the letter ends with him withdrawing from several partnerships that he's been a part of for many, many years. I know, he writes, that not everyone in your conference agrees with you, but your witness and votes at the general conference were mostly of one mind even though an option was before you to allow unity while honoring our differences, you insisted that this is not acceptable. You even discussed on the floor of General Conf Conference your hope that those who do not agree with you could make a gracious withdrawal or an honorable exit. In other words, you hoped any who did not agree with you would go quietly. I think you may have believed that you were excluding LGBTQ plus persons from the United Methodist Church ministry and some of its services. You are wrong. You were excluding me. You were excluding all of those United Methodists who, like me, believe that there are no subcategories of persons of sacred worth. There are no persons less sacred and less worthy that should therefore be excluded from ministry and participation in all of the services, such as marriage, and work of the church merely because of who God created them to be. For me and thousands of other United Methodists, there is no division into us and them. You quote a few verses from the Bible that are mostly scattered references in passing, never developed by any biblical witness into a tenet of faith, never mentioned by Jesus, and largely ignored in the history of the church, and you would divide us for this? That is a man who has taught the Bible at a Methodist church or at a Methodist seminary for over 40 years, spent 20 of those years as the dean. Scripture only starts to make sense in the context of the time and place it was written. To go back to the reading 
that we began with, this idea of wilderness. I grew up loving the wilderness. It's where my family would go for vacation. But the wilderness of Matthew's gospel is not an idyllic getaway. It is the desert. In a time and place that depended on crops and flocks, it was a place where wheat would not grow and sheep would not graze. So imagine for a moment this place. Not the pristine wild of one of our national parks where a, a hot meal and a warm bed are a short drive away. The wilderness of the ancient Middle East, a desert with no habitation and no easy way out. If you'd like to, close your eyes for a moment. Feel the wind blowing dust in your teeth, scorching hot by day and icy by night. Feel the thirst and the hunger without a way to quench them. Listen to the silence. Only the wind and the occasional rustling of an insect to keep your heartbeat company. Most of all, feel the isolation. Feel the loneliness of this place. The scripture says that after 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus is tempted by the devil. Three times he's tempted to use his power to alleviate the suffering he must have felt. First to create bread from stone, then to escape the wilderness, then to have power over the world. And each time Jesus refuses the easy way out until the devil retreats and Jesus is waited on by the angels. Now, I don't think you need to believe in a literal devil to understand this story. The temptation to take a shortcut, to leave the wilderness, is powerful enough as it is. And it's easy right now to say that the Methodist Church made a deeply flawed decision that should be at least immediately revoked and we should cut all ties with them. That's very tempting. And maybe the answer for progressive Methodists and Methodist-adjacent folks is to kick the dust off their sandals and move on. Certainly for my Methodist LGBTQ siblings, I won't deny that leaving may be the least hurtful outcome. The story feels complicated for me because the things that I love about the Methodist Church are some of the things that contributed to the decision last week. Of all the mainline denominations, the Methodists are some of the most integrated in the world. The Methodist Church is not just an American church, but an African church and an Asian church. And worldwide Methodism is, by and large, more conservative than American Methodism. 
American Methodists voted almost two to one against the traditional plan. If it was just the church in America, this would not have been a debate. But support from international delegates gave the traditional plan a slight majority overall. The many voices in my preaching class mean that the voice of liberal American Christianity is not the only one in those rooms. And the wilderness I feel like I've been in this week is this. The, the Methodist Church is one of the few, very few places where I felt true, authentic cultural and theological diversity. More so than the UUA. And that diversity is tied up in where the Methodist Church finds itself right now. African delegates on the floor of the, the conference invoked the legacy of colonialism in stating their opposition to what they see as the culture of the United States being imposed on them. I need to sit with that. There are so many ways that that is uncomfortable for me. We're also, uh, it's fair to say now 10 minutes into this sermon, we're not actually in a United Methodist Church. Unitarian Universalism has a much different understanding of gender and sexuality, scripture and the season of Lent. And that are three, those are three of the reasons, despite my love of the Methodist Church, that I serve here instead of at St. Paul's downtown. So earlier today, we sang a hymn, Come, Come, Whoever You Are. So I wonder if we can take a moment and sing that through one more time. So we'll play it on the piano, and then we'll just sing it in unison once through. This is 188 in the hymnal, if you want to look it up. universalist form. We're talking about the Christian season of Lent this morning, singing a hymn with the words of a Persian Muslim poet set to music by an American Unitarian. That's who we are. Our danger related to diversity is a little different. It's the temptation to take things out of their own context and apply them directly to ours. That is the danger of Unitarian Universalism. And this hymn actually is a, is a pretty good example of it because the, the Lynn Unger arrangement in the original keeps the next line of Rumi's hymn and then somehow when they put it into the hymnal they dropped out the other piece of the round. The hymn goes, though you've broken your vows a thousand times, come yet again, come. 
Rumi, the poet whose words, that's a translation of his words, was Sufi. It's a branch of Islam that focuses on direct experience with the divine. And it's worth talking a little bit in this heavy conversation about Lent and the wilderness that Rumi had a much different idea of, of sin and redemption and how we get things wrong than anything that we've been talking about so far. Islam does not really have the same idea of original sin as Christianity. What is there and is important is this idea that we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded of what is holy and what is good and what is right. That we already know it, but we may have forgotten. We might talk of an original forgetfulness. And so this, in that tradition, this is why we fast. That going without the physical feeling of hunger is a physical symbol of the need to be reminded, to be drawn to something that we already know. Just as when we haven't eaten in hours, we are drawn to a hamburger. When we are fasting, we are drawn to what we know is right. So, go back to the wilderness. Blowing wind and, and everything. What do you feel? What is it that is most central to you? You are an embodied person, mind, soul, and body. What does your body need? What does your mind need? And what does your soul need? My hope for the Methodist Church is not that all the delegates who voted for the traditional plan suddenly realize the error of their ways and correct course in the next year. That might happen. There's another conference in 2020. I also hope they don't suddenly, the Methodist Church doesn't suddenly become more Unitarian Universalist. We do that just fine ourselves. But I do hope that the Methodist Church remembers who it is. Remembers the things that are the core. The beauty of that tradition is the recognition that despite and because of our myriad differences, we are all beloved children of God. That is a reminder. And the last thing I'll say about this, about what's going on with the Methodist family, there's a, a temptation in these moments to say, hey, we've got it all figured out. The Unitarian Universalist Church has been doing this for a long time. Um, you know, if, if you're feeling expelled from United Methodism, just come be Unitarian Universalist. 
and, and sure. I know that I'm Unitarian Universalist in part because this is a tradition that says that love in all its forms is the heart of what we do. But I hope we, we can resist that temptation. I hope we can not flatten down difference and miss the beauty of traditions that aren't our own. Progressive Methodists are not Unitarian Universalism, Universalists. And while there's a lot we can do to support them as neighbors, they still want their own house rather than moving in with us. At the chapel at Wesley, where I used to preach and then get critiques from all of my classmates, Every year at this week, there's an Ash Wednesday service to start Lent. Someone, usually a professor, one time Bruce Birch, preaches. Students take communion and then go up front to receive a blessing. Ashes from last year's burned palm leaves. It's a reminder in that tradition that despite all of our differences, we come from dust and ash, and we all share what it means to be born, to live, and to die. That's uh, the tradition there, and one that, while I see the beauty in, is not mine. But I do want to end today with a blessing. Because while this story of going into the wilderness comes out of one tradition, all of us, all of us, have moments in the wilderness. They look different for each one of us, but they're always there. So let us say a blessing for ourselves this morning. Take a deep breath. Ground yourself in this space. Touch your own head. Remember that you are a human being, mortal, made of dust, but with one glorious life. And touch your hands. Remember that to which you are committed in body and in action. And now touch your heart. Remember that which your heart desires in whatever form it takes in your life. Feel the pull of love and that which is holy. Amen.